welcome to the Bent Bibliose podcast, where we chat with authors, book lovers, and each other about books, trends, writing, and so much more. I'm Tegan. And I'm Ashley. We are so excited to spend this time with you and to be a part of such an inclusive and incredible community. We are here today with Kate Williams, author of the Babysitter's Coven series and the recently released novel, Never Coming Home. Kate has written for Cosmopolitan, Nylon, Women's Health, and Elle, to name a few, and has ghostwritten a variety of New York Times bestsellers, celebrity memoirs, and more. Kate, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Before we begin chatting about Never Coming Home, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Well, yes. Yeah. So I, I'm one of those rare people that um, does what they went to college for. <laughs> um, and I have been a writer for basically my whole life. Like I started out like, you know, I worked on the yearbook in junior high and then worked on the yearbook in high school and then was a journalism major. And then I worked for magazines um, and now I write books. So writing is kind of um, all I've ever done, but I have truly done pretty much every kind of writing. I've done magazine stuff. I've done ghostwriting. I've done copywriting. You know, I've written advertising copy for billboards. Um, you know, I've done a little bit of everything. Um, so I think it's really nice, uh, you know, that I have that background in kind of, you know, doing all of these different things, because I think it makes me, one thing I'm not precious about writing fiction. Um, you know, I, when by the time I'd written my first book, I'd already been professionally writing for 10 years. So I was used to, you know, clients or editors or bosses being like, nope, toss it all out, <laughs> you know, start over. Um, so I think, you know, that, that gives me a good kind of perspective um, as, you know, a fiction writer. Um, I live in Kansas. Uh, I, my husband and I moved back here about a year and a half ago. We were living in California. Um, that's where he's from. But I, I was away for 18 years. This is where I grew up. And then, yeah, I moved back a year and a half ago um, with my husband and my son and my dog, who all are from California. <laughs> so um, that's a lot of fun. And yeah, I, I love what I do and I'm very blessed to do it. That's so cool. Yeah, because a lot of us don't always do what we go to school for, yeah. like what we think like our <laughs> paths are meandering. Like I went to school for English. I'm a, we were talking about this before we started recording and I'm a buyer. So, um, I shop Mm -hmm. (laughs) daily, but, um, definitely not. This is why it's so great doing this because I can do my passion for reading and books this way, but oh, that's really cool. So when did your love of reading begin? And when did you know that you wanted to become an author? I've always been a reader. I think I read the most when I was kind of a tween. You know, I remember taking books to school when I was like in fourth grade and doing that like comical thing of like hiding them in school books and, you know, reading during class. Um, I read a ton of Babysitter's Club. I read a ton of Sweet Valley High. Um, Those were kind of like the two big ones which is so funny because like, if you ask me now to name a plot of one of those, I'm just like, uh, <laughs> you know, I have no idea. Um, but at the time I read, I would read like a book a day, you know, like I would read in the car. My mom would take me to the grocery store and I'd read in the grocery store. I just like, I read nonstop. Um, and then when I was probably about like 14 or 15, my sister bought this book called Witch Baby by Francesca Leah Block um, at a Scholastic Book Fair. And she brought it home and like never read it. It was just laying around the house. And I picked it up and read it and it blew my mind. You know, I was coming from, like I said, like the Babysitter's Club, Sweet Valley High, which were kind of these like very straight, very like mainstream they were plot and character driven, but there wasn't that much focus on the writing. And Witch Baby was like a modern fairy tale. It was like beautiful writing. It was the first thing that I'd ever read that had like true racial diversity, that had gay characters, that had, you know, teen characters who were dealing with real life complex problems um, with this like absolutely like beautiful world building. And, you know, she would, talk about what characters were wearing and their hair. Um, 
and how they decorated their bedrooms. And it just like made a huge impression on me. Um, and I think to this day, that's probably still like the thing that has creatively influenced me the most. Um, and so like, you know, that kind of just, yeah, it, it opened my eyes to like a whole different kind of writing and like a way that books could not just entertain someone, but really impact them and change their worldview. I love that. So which baby? Tegan, yeah. we're going to have to look into that. Yeah. They're really like seminal kind of early nineties books. Um, and you know, they had a little bit of a revival like a few years ago um, with teenagers with kind of like, you know, the nineties nostalgia. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're still great. Um, and again, it's like, and it's like the characters, like they make movies, they play in bands, like, you know, it's really like creative. Um, and it kind of, I think it was also kind of this portrayal of how to live an artistic life um, where, you know, the characters were not, just concerned about like being popular or getting a boyfriend, but they were kind of answering these like, you know, bigger existential questions. That's really cool. I'm excited. And I love going back and reading books. T and I have done a couple episodes here. And then just in general, reading books that I read when I was younger, some of them I'm like, why did my dad buy me this? I was only like 12, (laughs) but I love reading them. And just the thing with books is it transports you, I feel for me, right back to the time when you were reading it. So it's just, I love it. I yeah, love absolutely. It. And I remember Sweet Valley High and uh, it was like 15 years ago. I don't know how long has it been since we've worked at the bookstore, Tegan, a while, but they had two adult books come out that like followed the characters in that book as they were adults. I haven't read it yet, but it's always kind of. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'd love to see how they, how they changed and how they did mm-hmm. that. But you mentioned Witch Baby, but what are some of the other books that have had the biggest impact on you throughout your life? I I would say my two favorite writers. It's funny. So all of Francesca Leah Block's books, like the author of Witch Baby, are all set in Los Angeles. Um, and those books really kind of, you know, ignited my like fascination with, with that city, you know, a good 10 years before I ever visited. Um And so all of my other favorite writers are also writers who like write about Los Angeles. Like I love Joan Didion. um, And I also love Eve Babbitts. Um, She's another like nonfiction writer. um, And they both were from LA, like wrote a lot about LA. Um, I love Raymond Chandler who wrote, you know, like noir detective stories um, set in Los Angeles. Um, I love Agatha Christie. You know, she is like my like go-to comfort read, you know, if I'm in like a a reading slump um, where it's like I haven't been able to find anything in a while that really like, you know, captures my interest. Like I'm like, oh, I'll just read some Miss Marple, (laughs) you know, um, it's very like predictable, but comforting and entertaining. I feel bad I haven't read anything by Joan Didion before. Oh, yeah. um, I have read Raymond Chandler, just uh-huh. the one, because my dad always gives me a lot of books and then I don't read them. And he's like, when are you going to read all the books I yeah. told you to read? Like he brings it up when we're in the bookstore. He's like, oh, look, here's that book I bought for you. Yeah. That you yeah. read and, uh, and so he got me some Raymond uh, Chandler and I did read, um, oh, it's like the lady and the lady in the lake or something I think so something like that yeah Yeah, um but it was good I really enjoyed it so I'm glad I finally read something he gave me it's another one he's another one where you read or at least I read for the writing Mm -hmm. you know like he's just he's a beautiful writer and you know the way he portrays the city and that time period I love to read like I read a lot of contemporary stuff but I love stuff that like takes you to a different time place um or time and place um, yeah and all the Raymond Chandler's books were like written in the 1930s and 40s oh. and it very much feels like mm-hmm. you're in that world like you just went back into like a Humphrey Bogart like exactly yeah movie. <laughs> um so for our listeners who have not yet read it can you tell us what Never Coming Home is about um well it is a contemporary reimagining of uh, Agatha Christie's and then there were none so that's one of her most famous books. And it's about um, 
10 strangers who all get invited to an island. And then once they are there, it is very quickly, obviously, obvious that there's a murder amongst them or somewhere on the island. And I, one of the things that I've always loved about Agatha Christie was, you know, she's fantastic about mysteries, but she writes like characters that you love to see get killed. You know, like these characters that like, as soon as they come on the page, you're like, oh, I can't, they're going to get it. And I can't wait. And so that was kind of my, what initially drew me to this idea, um, which is, you know, taking 10 influencers who think they're getting invited to this kind of high profile, like resort launch. Um, And then, you know, once they're there, like, you know, their secrets start to come out and everything kind of unravels. Um, And, you know, this was also really inspired by Fire Festival, um, which happened like a couple of years ago, which was the big disastrous music festival that everyone paid thousands of dollars to go to. And they got there and there was literally like tents on the beach and like absolute chaos. Because I, for me, like there's something interesting in how readily we are duped by the internet you know, even in, you know, 2022, like it's, internet's been around for a while. (laughs) Like We know that anyone can put anything out there. Um, But I think it's something in human nature that like, we want to believe what we see. And so yeah, it was kind of, you know, never coming home was kind of a mishmash of all of those different things that kind of sparked an idea of putting them all together. So it's like, Agatha Christie, influencers, fire festival, <laughs> social media, internet, murder. I love Agatha Christie. So when yeah. I saw that part of the synopsis, I was, I mean, I was already sold. I loved the yeah. babysitter's coven series. Yeah. I was like, I'm so excited <laughs> for an Agatha Christie retelling. So I loved this book. Oh, and I also cool. find the social, like the topic of social media and influencers, like endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Like you said, like there's just, it's crazy how, much of our lives they touch and they, mm-hmm. they influence for lack of a better word. So why did you choose this particular lens to tell this story through? I mean, I think social media is, it's such a complicated topic. Um, and, you know, it's really surprising to me. I don't know anyone except maybe my mom <laughs> who like loves it and thinks it's amazing. You know, it's like, like I said, like I, you know, I live in a college town. So, you know, I often talk to people who are teenagers who are in their early 20s. And it's like, you know, they are constantly having to take breaks because of how social media makes them feel about themselves. Like, you know, there's this kind of very conflicted relationship that a lot of people have with it. And so I think it's something that, you know, it's, brought a lot of good and it's opened a lot of doors but with that has like come a lot of kind of gray areas of is this good or is this bad and and you know one of the things that I think is interesting so I worked for magazines for a long time um and I primarily was like a celebrity journalist so I would work with you know you know I interview famous people um And I've also done a lot of like celebrity ghostwriting. And when you get close to people who are famous, like it's a really difficult thing, you know, and it brings with it like a lot of, you know, kind of really dark situations. And, you know, it used to be that when people became famous, you know, they kind of, you know, they were separated kind of from their fans and just kind of like the media and all of these things. And it's like they had publicists and they had managers and they had, you know, all of these people that could kind of protect them from this like onslaught of, you know, love, but also like criticism and um, vitriol. But with influencers, like, which this is part of what's exciting about it is we're now in a time where anyone can become famous. Like, you don't have to go through the Hollywood machine. Like you don't have to go through the in, like music industry machine. Like you can start recording videos in your bedroom, wherever you are, and you can become famous. 
But I think the hard part of that is that those kind of systems, which were gatekeeping, but also protective, no longer exist. So it's like you have like, you know, someone who is a teenager who's managing their own social media accounts and they're seeing, they're getting all of that feedback in real time about like their life and who they are. And that's another thing. It's like when you're an influencer, like you're becoming famous for being yourself. And most of them are kind of branding themselves and becoming like a version of themselves, but it's still part of them. And so it's like the feedback that you're given isn't that like, oh, you sucked in that movie or I didn't like your album. It's like you personally suck. And so I don't know. I think that that to me is like really interesting about just how people manage that. And also just the fact that that's not something that we see a lot of. So people, it's always surprising to me, like how many people want to be famous and you know, people want to be famous because we have this idea that fame will solve all of our problems, that we get famous and everyone will love us. We'll never be lonely, <laughs> you know, like we'll never feel bad about ourselves. Um, and so it's like people still want that. And I think that, you know, when you do kind of first start to become famous and you start to get all that attention, it's like a really big high. But then you know, especially now these cycles happen so quickly that it's like one day you're up and the next day you're down. Um, and I think that dealing with that psychologically is really difficult. And so what a lot of people do is they get that high of that first hit of fame and then they want to do whatever it takes to stay there. Um, and I think that's when people start to lose themselves. Um, and that's like, you see like the characters in this book, that's what happens. You know, that's what a lot of them are dealing with. You know, it's like they kind of get this attention for this idea of who people think they are. And then, you know, they have to work to continue to live up to those expectations. Yeah. Like I'm one of those people where I would never want fame um, as an introvert. Like I, very much treasure my solitude. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very important to my sanity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I just don't know how I would balance my life. Yeah. Like, I don't know how they would balance their life at all. Or like, I wouldn't want to value myself based on everybody else's validation. That would be exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and it's like everyone, like when someone says, oh, I don't care if people like me, like there's probably some people that really mean that, but I'm like the majority of people we want to be liked, like <laughs> it's, it's a very good survival instinct. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and so there's that too, where I'm just like, no, I, I have these people that I have that like energy for the, that, um, I can be comfortable enough around that to be myself. And, and I don't know how they have all those other people yeah. that they're trying to keep happy and make because a lot of them they have that gift of making everyone feel special mm -hmm. like these people are and I'm like I would not have I'd be like okay I'm burnt out now yeah. <laughs> bye everybody yeah well and <laughs> so do you think about it like social media is <clears throat> you know it's great for introverts um because it's like you get to do it by yourself and it's like you aren't necessarily performing on a stage full of people for, or on a stage for a crowd full of people, you're performing in your bedroom. Um, so I think that that's, again, it kind of like puts a lot of these people or puts some people in this situation that might not be something that they would have arri arrived at otherwise. Yeah, that's true. So you mentioned earlier, like how this is inspired by, and then there were none. Mm -hmm. um, I was just curious what is one of your other favorite adaptations of an original work? Oh man, I don't know. Oh, I mean, Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, probably like, you know, that was like a, a classic, like nineties movie. Um, and again, it's like, I love how he like took that, you know, very classic story and like updated it. So it doesn't even feel like it's like the nineties. It's like kind of like out of time, 
like with like the clothing and the cars and like the music, you know, it, it, it was like a classic story, but it really became its own thing. There are so many new adaptations coming out all the time. And I just, I love it. I absolutely love it. I don't know if you guys remember the movie. It's from like 19, I'm going to date myself, 1988. It was called Willow. Val Kilmer was in it. Yeah. Disney plus is bringing it back as a TV show with like some of the original. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And I was so excited. I I saw it last Mm -hmm. night and my husband's like, what are you? What are you so excited about? I'm like, no, you've never seen Willow. What's wrong with you? I was like, so there's so many cool, not only adaptations, but extensions. I love it. (laughs) So there's a statement made in the novel by a character named Justice that really made me think. As she was reflecting on the unexpected environment she found herself in, it is said she can be so American sometimes, thinking that everything should be comfortable and convenient. A Starbucks on every corner and a UPS truck on every street. This is such an interesting thing to think about, just how much we take for granted. And sometimes the fact that we can live in a bubble and not really realize how lucky we are or what other people have to go without. So I have a two-part question for you. What comforts could you not live without? And what are some everyday things that you take for granted? Um, I was thinking about this one. Uh, I think like the comfort, the comfort thing that I could not live without is probably my Instant Pot, <laughs> you know, like... It's a day saver when you're like cooking dinner after, you know, a busy day. Um, And like things that I take for granted, like just online shopping, you know, it's like I I grew up in Kansas um, in like the 90s. And I distinctly remember having an idea of how I wanted to dress in my head. But then I couldn't like I literally didn't have access to the clothing that I wanted to wear. Um, and now it's like, you can find like whatever you want at any time. Um, and so I, I definitely, you know, take that for granted, you know, just being able, like, I honestly think like, you know, I don't know that, you know, if it was the nineties, I would not have moved back to Kansas because like, it would have been, you know, foregoing a lot of things that, you know, are, I don't want to say important to me, but just, it's like, yeah, it's like, I love like fashion and music and like, you know, keeping up on trends and, and, you know, now like you can do that anywhere. So that's definitely something that I take for granted. I don't have an instant pot, but I have an air fryer. (laughs) I love that thing. Like they're like, oh, you know, you're like a millennial or like whoever, when you're like all about your air fryer, like what's with these like people in their (laughs) thirties being so excited about an air fryer. I'm like, it's because you haven't used one because if you view one, you would get it. Like, it's just amazing. You're like, oh, you want some chicken wings? Mm -hmm. Let me just no throw those in for 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be so good. <laughs> but yeah, that's definitely one for me where I'm like, oh yeah, I love that comfort. Yeah. And just the, living in a city, like just being able to go outside and get what I need. I don't know how people in the country do it. I'm like, oh, okay. you'd have to be way more organized, I think. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, like- <laughs> um, so um, while there are common threads among each character's motivations for accepting the invitation to unknown island what would get you to accept a mysterious invitation to this exclusive destination personally I would go for the free accommodations and the supposed relaxation because I love thrift shopping so I'm a sucker for free anything like samples sign me up (laughs) I mean I don't think I would do it (laughs) you know it's like I think you just it's like something if something's too good to be true it probably is you know um and like I'm always like I'm so skeptical like of anything that's like a hard sell or whenever anyone's like no this is amazing like blah 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 like I'm like "Ah, is it really like what's in it for you if I do this thing that you are trying to get me to do you know I'm with you on that. I am very, very type A. I am very, very organized and I need to know like what's happening when. So the thought of going somewhere where I didn't know where I was going, didn't have control over anything. I don't think I could handle it. Yeah, (laughs) You can do it. So we were talking a bit about social media earlier, but I have an endless fascination with social media and the impact that it has on our lives. I am old enough 
to have grown up without computers on the internet, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I only began having in high school. And influencers were nowhere near as popular as they are now. They didn't even exist for the early part of my life. Uh, it's a totally different beast. There's a passage in the book that says it was possible to tell where someone was in their career by which of their platforms had the most engagement. It's interesting to live in a time where we can actually see the evolution of social media and the role it plays in our lives and how quickly, seemingly day to day, it changes. How do these considerations about social media play a role in your career as an author? I mean, you know, it it plays a big role. Like I um, have just been, uh, you know, Never Coming Home comes out in two weeks. And so I've been like, you know, packing books up and like sending mailings out to, you know, people who are, you know, have like big followings and stuff, you know, in the hope that, you know, if one of these people decides that they really like my book, you know, someone who has, you know, thousands and thousands of followers on TikTok, like that could make the book take off. Um, So it's like, you know, you're always hoping for something like that. And I mean, the crazy thing is, I mean, it's not totally true. Like, you know, there are some like super successful authors out there who don't do social media. Like, I think, um, you know, like, Suzanne Collins, who wrote The Hunger Games, you know, is like nowhere to be found. Um, And I always mispronounce her name, but I think it's Jillian Flynn who wrote like Gone Girl. She also doesn't do it, you know. Um, But, you know, there are like, like Colleen Hoover is like, oh my God, it's like she's freaking everywhere. Like it's crazy. Um, And she has a huge social media presence. Like she's really good at it. Um, So yeah, it, it, is a big thing. Um, it's hard for me. I'm not a multitasker. I do like one thing. And like, I always say, like, I, I'm probably like, yeah, a little bit obsessive. Like when I start something, I need to finish it. Um, and I'm also type A. So if I start something, then I not only need to finish it, but I need to have it be perfect. Um, and I had to realize for me, like, I can't, I can't do TikTok for that reason, because like, I can't just like, shoot something and throw it out there. It's like, I spend my whole day, like, you know, being like, oh, well, the lighting is bad and that. So I should like redo it, you know, or it's like, it'll take me like forever to edit a video because it's like, once I've identified a way that it can be better then it's like, I can't not make it better. So it's like, for me, it's like, I can't do a ton of social media because I just don't have the time. Um, you know, it's like, I have a four-year-old, so my writing time is when he's in preschool. Um, it's, it's finite. Um, and, um, I think if I had, you know, if I was younger and like, you know, wasn't married and didn't have a child, like, and I had more, you know, time to kind of do whatever I wanted, I probably would do more with social media. Um, but now it's just, I can't do that and write in the way that I need to write to make myself feel confident about what I'm writing. I have not entered the world of TikTok. (laughs) I have not. I already spend too much time on my phone and I am realizing that more and more when I'm like, I didn't get all my stuff done. What am I? Yeah. Oh my goodness. What do you mean? It's been like five hours on. (laughs) So, but you're right though, in the bookstores, um, in the States when I've been in here in Canada, there's shelves or tables that are like book talk, like absolutely book talk yeah. sensation. So it absolutely does have a huge role and it's an extra layer that authors have, I guess they don't have to, but kind of have to do now yeah. um, in order to be seen as much. Yeah. And it's funny. I, I always say that like, you know, the stakes keep getting raised, you know, Twitter, like you could throw off a one-liner, you know, and then Instagram, like all of a sudden it's like, you need to have a picture and it needs to be like a good picture in, ad- in addition to like the one liner and the caption. And then like now with like reels and TikTok, it's like, oh, like you have to have like a whole video and it's like, you probably need to be in it, you know, <laughs> you know, so it's like, it just keep getting raised where you're just like, oh man, like I can't just like, and some people can't, some people can like throw something off like really quickly. Um, I'm not one of those people. I don't, that's not one of my talents. And it will, in the same vein as that, I really enjoyed the exploration of doing what we think we should do versus what we want to do throughout the novel. I think it can be easy to live for others or for likes as Emma Jane, who wants to post artsy photos, but post photos of herself in bikinis instead does. We all love the feeling of getting likes or a follow from someone we admire. 
what kind of a toll do you think that that takes on a person? I mean, I think, you know, it leads people to feel like they're living a double life. And I think, um, you know, to put this like on a microcosm, I think a lot of people have that feeling like, say like in their family, for instance, you know, it's like your family has always seen you as one, one way, or it's like you are, you know, into something, or there's something about you that you don't think that your family will like approve of, um, or will accept. And so you kind of start to, you know, you start to have like these two lives. you have the life that, and everyone does this to a certain extent, like you're a different person with your coworkers and with your friends and with your family. But I think it gets kind of dangerous is maybe not the right word, but it gets more hurtful, like the wider the chasm between those personalities gets. Um, and I think that, you know, that when you start to like get into the world of social media and it's like how to build your following, every advice everywhere is like, define your niche and stick with it, you know? Um, and so then it's like, okay, well, I'm into books so I can post about books, but I also like to garden and I cook and I do, you know, all this stuff. So it's like, eventually like these other parts of yourself, like start to kind of like fall away because you're trying to like stick with your niche or like brand yourself. Um, and, you know, I think that that's kind of what that is talking about, like with these influencers is, again, it's like to stay where they are, they need to give people what they want. Um, and I think the fact that, you know, Instagram, now you can hide the like count is amazing because I think that that gives people a lot more freedom to kind of like post what they want to post without thinking, because like you just get used to having a certain number of likes or things being successful. And, you know, when you work in marketing and like, you know, I worked in social media for a long time and it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, we'd have meetings about like what made this successful, you know, and, you know, and then you want to try to replicate that. And it's like, yeah, it just kind of eventually leads to like, you're giving the people what they want. So I think about it's like, say like you only want to eat mac and cheese. So it's like, or you have a kid that only wants to eat mac and cheese. So eventually you just give them mac and cheese, mac and cheese, mac and cheese. And then one day they hate mac and cheese, you know? And like, I think like that's kind of what happens with a lot of this stuff is like people narrow themselves down, narrow themselves down. And then all of a sudden people don't want that anymore. And they're like, well, I narrowed myself down for you guys. Like, you know, and now like you're telling me that this thing that I became because I thought that's what people wanted me to become, like, isn't even relevant anymore. Um, so yeah, I think it, it just, it again can lead to people feeling like, you know, they're not really being seen for who they are. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. Um, and so true, because I'm thinking, I, this is probably a super bad example, but what came to mind is my own Spotify <laughs> list yeah. of music. And I had it on in the car yesterday, we were driving, um, my husband was driving um, to a family event. And he's like flipping through, he's like, what is on here? So there's like, some like choral music because yeah. I was like I wanted to listen to like some um group saying like something from Lord of the Rings and then there's Harry Styles and then there's like Lizzo and it's just all over the yeah. place and I'm like I would hate it if somebody was like no you should only go like with yeah exactly yeah you know singer songwriters like this um I feel like but there's this whole other sides of me or even just emotions you're almost canceling some like feelings sometimes because if, yeah, exactly. if your lane is happy peppy positive posts it's really hard to be like no I'm in a I'm feeling angry today or exactly yeah um so I wanted to expand a bit more on the last question but specifically as it relates to artistry Mm -hmm. Art for art's sake does not always equate to something that resonates or is accepted by an audience. And with the increase in social media, art can have so many avenues and more and more potential audiences. But the flip side is the market is oversaturated and defined by what is more commercial or popular. And commercialism, of course, is nothing new. We've had that for quite a long time. Um, but do you think we are losing creativity with the vastness of social media? Or do you think it's expanding? the avenues for artistry? I think, again, I think it's, it's totally different. Um, you know, I think 
different generations use things differently. And I think that, you know, you are already seeing like, so when I think of like the millennial aesthetic, you know, we all think of like millennial pink and everything was like very like clean and very like perfect, you know, like you, if, if we're talking about the book world, like, you know, the classic like millennial image is like, you know, the book and like the beautiful background and the latte and like, you know, the flowers. And then, you know, like Gen Z came along with TikTok and, you know, these are like quick, like, you know, videos that, I mean, TikTok's whole thing is like, it's very hard to get things perfect on there, you know? So it's like, um, so I think it just kind of depends. It's like, you'll have like one generation that kind of like starts to narrow things down. And then the next generation that comes along will obviously look at what the previous generation has been doing. And it's like, we don't want to do any of that. So it's like, they take it the opposite direction. So it's like, this stuff is always like a pendulum, you know? And it's like, you think about like, you had the eighties, like greed is good. And then, you know, in the nineties, it swung to like grunge and, you know, kind of like rejecting all of those like capitalist values. And then you had the two thousands where it was just like, everything was like Y2K and like embracing, you know, like computers and technology. And, you know, everyone was like wearing vinyl. <laughs> and then, you know, like the 2010s, it's like, everyone was kind of like, like, I always think of like Mumford and Sons, you know, it's like, everyone was like, oh, let's go camping. <laughs> you know, so it's just like, everything is just like, it's always going to swing in, you know, reaction to like what came before and, you know, where it wants to be or art at least. And, and I, I think of pop culture as art, you know, it's all, you know, like anything that is creative is art. So it all kind of blends together. Yeah. And like with my day job, I, I have to pay attention to fashion trends to a certain extent. Yeah. Like there's, there's stuff that doesn't go out of style, like a hood is a hood like yeah. they're not you know a crew is a crew but in terms of like the designs we put on it and things like that that sometimes can change and it's really fun and kind of sad at times to see the trends that they're like oh it's so vintage and I'm like I wore that yeah like, oh, no, it's vintage now oh. yeah. and yeah. like <laughs> but it's really neat to see them take put their own spin on things that mm. happened before. So it's always yeah. repeating and kind of like, they say like seven year cycles, like something will come back in, yeah. in but always a little bit different. Um, so I kind of love it um, seeing what the journey will take and what, and I actually do enjoy TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but mm -hmm. I see a lot of TikTok videos yeah. and I just think how fun, like a lot of these are just funny and you see people oh, yeah. doing like, the craziest things with their family and like other things. I'm like, that's, yeah. that's, there's a lot of joyful things on TikTok, yeah, absolutely. but yeah, it's definitely not as polished. <laughs> um, so in the same um, topic to expand on um, in the world of clickbait and stage filtered photos, it's difficult to take anything posted online at face value and with no degree of skepticism. So even if someone is being real, their motives can still be questioned. Is there room for complete authenticity in social media? And if yes, what does it look like to you? Oh man, that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I think there probably is. Um, and again, it's like, I think we are like, Gen Z is probably doing that better than millennials were doing. I think, you know, I don't know. We've just gone through so much you know, as a civilization, like the past couple years that I think it's really hard to kind of even like nail anything down now because everything like, I feel like no one knows what's going on. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's weird. And I think, again, it's like, you're kind of, you know, people are really kind of becoming more aware of kind of how they have been, you know, or how messages have been like manipulated. Like, I think that, you know, people are kind of finally, or at least I, maybe this is wishful thinking, but, you know, getting tired of the Kardashians and, you know, realizing that whatever, 
new thing that they serve up is just to like kind of keep us interested. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's just interesting. It'll be interesting to see kind of how that continues to unravel and how, you know, people just are not going to buy into it as much as we did in the past. And I think that's a good thing because I think before, I mean, the Kardashians were huge. I didn't know they had a new show on Disney plus until like, it's like plastered at the top when you hit the app. But yeah, I do think people are, like you said, becoming a little bit more, I don't know, is skeptical the right word? Like they are kind of, and I think that the content, at least from what I've seen, people are kind of craving a little bit more authenticity. Like you don't have to be perfect all the time. Like I want to see someone that's like me who has great days, but also has days where you're like, okay, I'm just going to go back to sleep until tomorrow. So I think that's a positive um, thing that is starting to come about. Mm -hmm. So when Robbie is talking to justice, he says the past couple of years have been blur. My YouTube channel took off and then I had my own restaurant. Even though those were things that I wanted, it felt out of my control. I guess people felt like they knew me from YouTube. They felt like they had a say in everything I did and it felt like they owned me. So in the spectrum of celebrity, do you think people sign up for the loss of privacy they get when they make a career out of putting themselves online? And how much sharing do you think is, is too much sharing? I mean, again, I think it just depends on like the person and like their own kind of comfort level. You know, it's like, you know, there are some people who are very famous who have, you know, maintained a lot of privacy and those are like usually like actors um or it seems like you know actors or or musicians or someone who like you know really like has an art that that is what they're producing and like like you think about it's like everyone knows who Beyonce is but she's actually maintained like a a lot of privacy um like around her like personal life and her family and you know she's not someone who's just like you know posting pictures of herself in in the bathroom, you know, it's like someone else is clearly like running her account. Um, And then it's like, you have someone like Justin Bieber who like, again, you know, has like, I think he has an actual like remarkable level of authenticity. Um, And, you know, he's always posting things where I can read it and I'm like, oh, the publicist is having a day now, (laughs) you know, because you can tell that like, it's just like coming like from, you know, his heart and like, he's just blah, sinned. Um, so yeah, I think it, it just, uh, it kind of depends on the person and, you know, again, it's like oversharing. It's like, you know, when Chrissy Teigen, you know, had, she lost a baby at like six months old and, or six, she was six months pregnant. And, you know, she posted pictures of her and her husband in the hospital room. Um, and she got a lot of flack for that. Um, but in a lot of ways, like that is actually like, you know, a really kind of profound thing to do because she was like using her position to kind of take people into a situation that most people don't have any experience with. And, you know, kind of like by her sharing this very personal experience, like it probably made a lot of people feel like they could talk about something that they had gone through. Um, So again, I think it just, you know, depends on like the person and the situation and all things like that. I agree. And I think that also when people start talking about those things that may be taboo, like mental health or miscarriage or things like that, when they see other people talking about it, sometimes I think it inspires them to say, okay, you know what? They're doing it. So I can. So I I do think that there is, I personally, I like to kind of keep things a little bit close to my chest, but I appreciate, and I always find value in the people that do um, say things that I'm not yeah. brave enough yet yeah. to, to talk about. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, yeah. you've established that neither one of us would go to that Island. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't go, <laughs> Yeah, but there are 10 people that did yeah. throughout the terrifying events that unfold while they're there. Each character reacts and deals with the events in a very different way, mm-hmm. springing into action, turning amateur sleuth, shutting down denial, I have always loved learning what makes people do the things that they do. Mm -hmm. What kind of research did you have to do for this novel in relation to all of the different coping mechanisms that each of the characters employ? And how do you think that you would react in this situation that they find themselves in if you had to be there? 
I mean, I can't even imagine like, you know, like the situation that they're in is like so terrifying. It's like someone is trying to kill them and they don't know who. And, you know, it's like everything keeps changing and they don't know who to trust. And I mean, yeah, it's just like, it seems like totally terrifying. And I'm like a weakling, like, like, I don't ever want to go to an escape room. I don't like haunted houses, you know? So it's like, I can't even imagine like how I would react in, you know, the situations that they were in. Um, And what, you know, I think is what was interesting for me about writing this book was, you know, like I said, the beginning, I wanted to write unlikable characters. But then as I wrote this book, I started to have a lot of empathy for them, you know, because I think that for the most part, they all kind of, once they got on that island and all of that stuff was happening, like most of them were actually pretty selfless. And like they were trying to help other people, like they were trying to like solve the problem collectively. So I I think that, you know, for me, like as a writer, characters are really interesting because it's like, you don't, at least I don't feel like I really create them. You know, it's kind of like they show up and they take on a life of their own and they become these people that you didn't, you know, expect them to become. Um, And like, I just really loved writing all of these characters and kind of, you know, seeing how they did react and like what they did do and, you know, kind of their own, you know, personal reckonings that happened uh, throughout the story. It was, it was really interesting and fun for me to kind of like put that on the page. Yeah, I could definitely see that while reading like their evolution as their experience and as they all get to know each other and interact with each other and interact with what's happening Mm -hmm. and just, I personally probably would have just like hid somewhere, I think. (laughs) Or I would have been like the rabbit that's on the lawn. Like, you can't see me if I don't move, right? Like, I'm just (laughs) I just feel like that. I would not move. Um, But there were certain characters, like the first impression that I had changed. And like, I loved the character of Chelsea. She was so witty and sarcastic. And I really liked Emma Jane because she also loves true crime. Yeah, I love true crime. Um, And we have said that maybe are still (laughs) a little unlikable, like Margot, the disingenuous founder and CEO of a technology startup, SheMail. Um, I can imagine she was fun to write, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, so which character was the most difficult to write and which one did you relate to the most? I don't know that I I actually probably related to Chelsea the most. Um, she was, you know, like the babysitter's coven had a very kind of like ironic, sarcastic tone. And like Chelsea had that as well. Um, and I in you know, one of my jobs as a magazine, at a magazine, I was a beauty editor. So I was doing things like in the book, like Chelsea goes to a dinner party to celebrate the launch of a curling iron, you know? And it's like, I used to actually like do things like that. Um, So I I related to that. Um, But, you know, it's like in a book like this, it's like you kind of give a little bit of yourself to a lot of characters. and, you know, I, I wrote this book, um, you know, in 2020 and 2021, which were big years, you know, globally. Um, they were also kind of very difficult years for me personally. Um, just, you know, my husband and I both dealt with a lot of health issues. Like we moved halfway across the country, you know, it's like, and so it's like, I had a kind of lot of dark feelings that, I was able to give to these characters that I think, you know, made it very authentic for me. Um, you know, one of the characters like Robbie was one of my favorite characters to write. And, you know, that was one thing that kind of surprised me, but I appreciated that he was someone, you know, he was very authentic. Like he wasn't very nice, but he, you know, kind of knew he knew who he was. So that, that was, you know, fun to write. Um, I don't know. I, I really, I liked all of them. 
Yeah, I also really liked Robbie. Yeah. Um, and I really liked his perspective on yeah. Emma Jane. I thought yeah. it was really refreshing. So at one point he reflects that she was smarter than she looked and maybe a little mean and probably the kind of girl who even once you got to know her well, you still had no idea what was going on in her head. That was the kind of girl he liked. And I just, I love that because comes to mind like um, uh, Wuthering Heights and the characters Heathcliff and Kathy, they're kind of like, I, have you ever read the book? I have not for a long time. Okay. So they're really flawed characters yeah. and I love flawed characters and redemptive arcs, but like Heathcliff and Kath, like they're pretty selfish, but then yeah. they love each other so much. So yeah. it's just like, there's always that kind of conflict. Um, so what are some of your favorite flawed characters in literature or film and what do you love about them? Oh man. I mean, I think every character is flawed. Um, you know, if we're talking about like literature, um, like, a well, Raymond Chandler, like Marlowe, the, the main character in Raymond Chandler's books, you know, he's like, this kind of like hard boiled detective. Um, but I always said that, you know, I would read an entire book that was just scenes of Marlowe making coffee. Um, and, you know, he is one of the things he's, he always does the right thing, you know, he, in the end, like no matter how much it like hurts him to do, he does it. So I love that. Um, you know, I loved like Fleabag on Amazon, you know, it's like those characters were like awful, but you kind of like, you kind of ended up loving them. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, that it's something that is very hard to, it's hard to accept yourself and it's hard to accept other people as they are. Um, and I think like, as, you know, cliche as it sounds like, you know, you have to always remind yourself that, you know, most people are doing the best they can, you know, and it's just that everyone's best is different. I love a really good unlikable character. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I love to like hate the character. And Tegan and I actually were talking about this in another episode. Um, and sometimes the flaws and the people that seem quote unquote, the worst at the beginning, it's just there's something so satisfying about mm -hmm. seeing their evolution through yeah, the exactly. story and learning, even if you don't agree with what they're doing, mm -hmm. even if you still don't love them at the end, you kind of have um, an empathy or an understanding for yeah. them. And I just, I love that. So as mentioned earlier, Emma Jane loves true crime. She loved murder. She listened to podcasts about it, read books on digested message boards. She had theories about Ted Bundy, Jody Arias, and the Golden State Killer. And she watched The Staircase, Making a Murderer, and The Jinx to Fall Asleep at Night. I do love true crime yeah. documentaries. I yeah. don't know if I could fall asleep to them. Yeah. But why do you think we are so fascinated as a society with murder? I don't know. I mean, I've thought about this like a lot and I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is, or at least this is my theory. Um, you know, I, I'm very into magic. So like witchcraft, ceremonial magic, all that stuff. Like I, you know, I, I do a lot of reading, like I study a lot of that stuff. Um, and you know, a lot of magic is kind of, you know, understanding that there is a light and a dark and that everything like works together. Um, and, you know, I think our culture, we do not do a good job of integrating the dark. You know, we do not do a good job of integrating grief or death or even the fact that like life has ups and downs. Um, you know, when we are in a down, um, we kind of think of it as something that we need, a problem that we need to hurry up and fix. Um, a, there's an amazing book that came out like a year or two ago called Wintering. Um, and it was, you know, essays just about kind of, yeah, like going through like the kind of like quieter, like, you know, less shiny parts of life. Um, and I think that, or may, maybe, um, maybe like we are so obsessed with true crime because it's kind of an extreme darkness um, and it kind of makes us or allows us to think about these ideas and subjects that we are not really 
like allowed to think about. Um, in other cases, you know, it's like you can sit down and talk about like a true crime podcast that you just listened to or, you know, a book that you read and you're talking about like people dying. Um, and that's mm -hmm. easier than talking about like your loved ones dying or like your own death. Um, or, you know, it's like when you become a parent, it's just like becoming a parent is like the scariest fucking thing in the entire world. Um, and, you know, it's like, you don't want to talk or think about that. Um, but, you know, being into true crime or talking about these cases, like, yeah, you kind of get to have those thoughts and ideas like moving um, in a way that's still abstract enough to be safe. I think Tegan, you can chime in. You absolutely use true crime as like an escape sometimes from being yeah. afraid or worried about your kids. Well, yeah. Um, it's funny. I, when I had my son, um, the most, cause basically it's the most terrifying experience. Like a lot of times people talk about how, you know, much joy there is and there's that too, but it's also terrifying because here's this little human being that you love so much that you're going to worry about for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I would like be nursing and watching true crime. And I thought, is this normal? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm like, I don't care. This is yeah. what I, I apparently need right now. Yeah. It would just be um, that balance. Right. Cause yeah. you, and I think what you're saying, I'm going, yeah. Cause I've tried to figure out why I like true crime. And I think what you're saying is, it's true. Like, I think that is the case is sometimes it is a safe way to kind of explore why we have these darker feelings mm -hmm. or why people do these things or why, you know, we have those sort of uh, darker sides to people, including yeah. ourselves. So what is one of your favorite true crime books, podcasts, and documentaries? Oh, I mean, probably like, you know, Helter, Skel Helter Skelter, um, which is like the classic book about like the Manson family trials uh, or the Manson family murders. Um, and then there's a podcast, You Must Remember This, um, which is all about like the golden age of Hollywood. Um, it's not necessarily about the golden age of Hollywood. It's just like untold stories in Hollywood history. And she has a whole arc. Um, I think it's like eight or nine episodes that are about like the Manson family murders. Um, and I'm like, you know, I like the things that would be my, you know, junkie dumb would be like, like I said, like Los Angeles, Hollywood history, and especially like, you know, the dark side of rock and roll. Um, and so when you talk about like the Manson family murders, like that was, you know, it touched on all of that, you know, it touched on Hollywood, like it touched on like rock and roll, you know, it touched on like the hippie movement. Um, and so that to me, and it's also like, you know, the sixties and seventies are just like a time for decades that I'm really interested in because so much came out of those like artistically. So that would probably be uh, my, you know, recommendation. Yeah. Like I found it really fascinating that show. I don't think they're doing it anymore because it was too expensive. Mine hunters. Okay. Yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really good. Um, yeah. You should still watch it, even though they're not continuing it, I don't believe. Um, but it is that kind of time period after the Manson murders mm -hmm. and just um, how they just started to figure out criminal profiling. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just fascinating. And Manson's in there at one point too. And yeah, kind of spooky how they do the, uh, the actors. Yeah. Well, Oh, it's so good. Okay. You, you have to watch it because my husband won't. I tried to get on. Yeah. She's like, no. And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> so I really liked the connection between your characters, Manny and Frankie. Um, it's established early on in the novel. Mm -hmm. Manny fantasizes about their future, imagining them cooking elaborate yet mediocre meals together, stealing each other's chargers and other things. He notes they'd fight, she'd annoy him, he'd annoy her, but they'd be real together. Mm -hmm. Cracks and flaws and mistakes all on the table. Hypothetically, because we want to remain yeah. spoiler free, do Manny and Frankie have the ingredients for a forever love or do you think it's just a connection based on shared circumstances? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, like when he's like thinking all of that, you know, that excerpt that you just read, like 
you know, what that is, is like him wanting like a real relationship, you know, and that is, I think something that, you know, it's not the most like what he's fantasizing about the, the least romantic parts of a relationship. Um, because it's like, when you're in that, when those parts happen, it's like, then you're, you know, like you're really in a relationship. Like you're not just like dating. You're not just like hooking up with someone like you're really together. Um, and I don't know that she is there yet or like she's very independent because I think she's had to be. And I think it would be a lot for her to kind of like let someone in that much. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know if they would have, they like have a future together. It's interesting to think about though. Yeah. So to dive into the psychology of the characters for a moment, many of the actions taken by various characters in the book may not have started out with ill or fatal intentions, yeah. but ended horrifically nonetheless. What do you think is more important in the instances described regarding the characters' past in the book? Intent or result? I don't know. That's a that's a very good question. I think when we're talking about it from like the story point of view. And this is something that I used to think about as a teenager. Like, what if something really bad happens when you're already doing something kind of bad, you know? And so, like, um, and that's, like, again, it's, like, that's a plot of a million, like, horror movies. Like, I know what you did last summer. Um, so I think, you know, the the interesting thing from a storytelling perspective is it's not necessarily the intent, but it's, like, how you, what do you do after the thing happens? You know, and if it's like something, if something bad happens and like you didn't mean for it to happen, but it still happened and immediately you're like calling 911, you're telling, like, there's no story there. Um, like, but if something bad happens and you're like, how can I make sure that no one ever finds out about this? Like, that's, you know, when like, the ball starts rolling um, from like the storytelling perspective. But I used to think about that all the time. It's like, you know, like a classic teenager thing. It's like you sneak out of the house at night. Like, and again, it's like, I have a very active imagination. <laughs> like, and I'm like, what if I sneak out? You know, so I was like one of those kids that like, you know, I was always doing bad things, but I was very guilty and worried about it. So, you know, I'd be like sneaking out of the house and being like, what if I witness a murder and I'm not even supposed to be here? <laughs> like, like, just like that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I kind of do that on like a low-key scale a lot because I'll be like, oh, what if I don't do this? Like where you're being like lazy or cutting corners, you're like, what if then you think like 10, or at least I do, um, like 10 steps ahead. I'm like, but then what if this happens? Yeah, exactly. And like- <laughs> And then I'll never forgive myself. Yeah. Like there's those things where, um, this is a little different, but my husband, um, kind of rolls his eyes at me. I'm like, Paisley, like, is your seatbelt really tight? Blah, yeah. blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, they always, you do this every time. I'm like, but if the one time I didn't ask, exactly, I would yeah. never forgive myself. So there's yeah. always those things I think we think about. So are you able to tell us anything about what you are currently working on? I am currently taking a break. Um, I, like I said, uh, it was a difficult couple of years um, for me personally. Um, I get choked up, but I had um, a couple of miscarriages while I was working on this book. Um, and I was always under deadline. Um, so like I said, I do ghostwriting as well and we're moving cross country. Um, so when I wrapped this book, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna like not work on anything for a while and just, you know, do all the life stuff and the thinking and meditating and walks in the woods that have gotten swept under the rug, like while I was on deadline. I'm really sorry for your loss. Thank, oh, you, thank you for sharing that. Um, but yeah, I'm really glad that you're taking time that you need. That's so important. Yeah. Well, and I think it's like, you know, I'm very privileged to be in the place where I am, where I am, you know, a friend of mine put it as like, you use your imagination to buy groceries. Um, so I feel like you need to, or at least for me, it's very important to kind of like protect that and make sure that I am not falling into the trap of, you know, 
just writing another book because I feel like that's what I need to be doing. And it's like, I, you know, I want to make sure that um, the projects that I'm working on are very personal and important to me and that I feel like I actually have something to say. Like I actually, like I, I, I worked on a proposal for like another book to write. And then, you know, I got like, worked on it for several weeks. And then I was like, you know, I just like, there's no point in this. Like, I'm not, there's nothing that I'm like trying to say. Um, like it's just, it felt kind of empty. And so that's, you know, what I want to avoid. So that I just scrapped. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That makes sense. So thank you so much. Well, thank you guys so us. much. This was very fun. Never Coming Home, as well as the Babysitter's Coven series, can be purchased anywhere books are sold. You can keep up to date with Kate by visiting our website at www.heykatewilliams.com and by following her on Instagram at, at heykatewilliams. All links will be provided in the show notes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please leave us a review. It really helps. Also, don't forget to visit us on Instagram to continue the conversation, be notified of bonus episodes, and keep up to date with what we are currently reading. We put up new episodes every other Friday.